0: We are in Hebrews chapter 10, um, examining, the, uh, examining verses 19 to 25, and we're going to be focusing our attention really on verse 23 this time, a second of three admonitions. While you're turning there, I uh, will bring some words of introduction, uh, hopefully to uh, set the stage. Uh, so let me say that the Irish dramatist and poet Oscar Wilde once said this. If a thing is worth doing, it's worth doing well. If it's worth having, it's worth waiting for. If it's worth attaining, it's worth fighting for. If it's worth experiencing, it's worth putting aside time for. End quote. Now, those of you who don't know much about Wilde, he was born an Anglican and converted to Catholicism on his deathbed at age 46. And even, even though those two religions are very creedal in nature. Uh, He himself had absolutely no use for formal creeds, much less any desire to submit himself to one during his prime. Uh, He's been described as a supreme individualist who did what he wanted. And what he wanted, what he sought after, at least to him, was indeed worthwhile. As much of a free-spirited gent as he was, his words here seem to me to be very creedal and timeless. They make sense coming from a man like him who devoted all his time and energy and intellectual pursuits to writing about life, no doubt with the goal in mind to to make people stop and think about what's important. This is certainly a worthwhile endeavor. These Words of his could could very well have been his own creed to live by, his motto. If you examine them closely, you'll see that they have all the earmarks of a creed. They talk about what is important or worthwhile and how one lives in light of that. In other words, they capture his doctrine and practice. And when they... when. When when they're put in creedal form that is meant to be recited or, or even sung, they would have served to remind him of why he does his best, why he waits patiently and strives to attain and fights for what is worthwhile. Now, it's not easy to pursue something worthwhile, not in Dublin, where he grew up, and not in America 120 years later. In fact, as time goes on in our country, the pursuit of things that really matter seem more difficult for, for us, at least for two reasons. One is that what's worthwhile or virtuous is constantly being redefined. So you're tempted to believe that what you thought was virtuous is really not, and what you would not think to be virtuous really is. The other is that our times really knows nothing about hard work, knows nothing about good work ethic and and integrity that was modeled by our forefathers so many years ago. So living in this carefree society of ours makes it all the more difficult to stay the difficult but worthwhile course. And this is true whether people are Christians or not. There are some hardworking non-Christians usually they're older because they have that outdated Judeo-Christian mindset, who know the value of hard work, know the value of working hard for something worthwhile, whether it's making an honest living or fighting for the country. They also experience just how intense the struggle to maintain what is worthwhile, stay the course, and not lose ground can be. So they do what they can to make their struggle more bearable. For example, rather than go it alone like wild, they may seek to band together with others who share their cause. The thinking is strength in numbers. But whether individually or collectively, they also have a creed that is a set of beliefs or aims that guide their actions. They do. Some go so far as to codify their core beliefs and form an organization around it. The creed defines them and what they stand for. It gives meaning to their actions. You see, it's much easier to soldier on in a cause when you have a set of core beliefs shared by others who are with you. For others, like Wilde, the creed is not so formal, but it is nonetheless there. And whether formal or not, those who live by them often find, well, clever ways to sum them up in a catchy motto that they can recite to themselves or to each other when they find the fight extra heavy. It's part of making the struggle bearable. Take, for example, the United States Marines. A branch of the armed forces with their own core beliefs, and an inspiring motto in Latin, of course, everything sounds better in Latin. Semper Fidelis," which means "Always faithful." It sums up in the mind of every marine, quote, an internal and collective commitment to the success of their battles, the progress of their nation, and the steadfast loyalty to their fellow Marines. They fight alongside, end quote. You can all go shake Jason Cruz and my dad's hand after the message is over. Quoted by, quoted by one Marine to another when in the moment, when the moment is right, I should say, it infuses both an energy that instantly renews their commitment. And with that thinking, they are definitely a force to be reckoned with. Mottos are very much a call to action. They stimulate a healthy pride in in a particular cause to which people have joined themselves. You might not have thought about our national anthem quite in this way, but it used to be used to rouse people to a cause as well as to proclaim national identity. Have you not felt a, a sense of pride and nationalism when you hear it played, especially at the Olympics when the U.S. takes a first? It was written to be awe-inspiring. Those goosebumps are are, are, are were purposeful. They, the, the 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 music, the words, all of it just is so inspiring. Now, marketing experts who have studied the psychology behind anthems and mottos and how they can unite in powerful ways, have actually captured the essence of their strategies in slogans. So General Mills wants you to know that their cereal Wheaties is is the breakfast of champions. And that if you eat it, you too can be a champion. Champion of what? We don't know. But you see how it works. You want to be a champion? You want to be with us? Eat the Wheaties. Or American runs on Dunkin', which can mean that the only sound fuel that keeps the country going is Dunkin' Donuts coffee. Or the real American drinks Dunkin' Donuts coffee. Or if that you are a true patriot, you will drink Dunkin' Donuts coffee. Take your pick. And after, or since, I should say, 1956. Timex Corporation has continually maintained the absolute reliability of their product and that their watch is really the only one for you because it takes a licking and keeps on ticking. That's right. The slogans are short, they're memorable, they're bursts of motivation, and that's deliberate. You find yourself reciting them often in the car as you're getting dressed. You annoy people in your... In your household, because you say them all the time, and the more you recite them, the more apt you are to believe it, and the more likely you are to buy the product and join the cause. That's how it happens. Now, it's not my intention to talk about poets, the psychology of marketing, but rather doctrine that is worthwhile, how it is meant to lead to practice. And how that practice of the doctrine is a worthwhile endeavor that is no means easy. And what we need to do is stay the course. That's what I want to talk about this morning. All true Christians have doctrine. It comes from the scripture. It's the same for every Christian because as Paul said, every Christian belongs to one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in all. Christians have the same biblical goals. They are in the same battle. They fight the same enemy and they all struggle. They also have the same supernatural weapon and resources in their armory to overcome their struggles, the same code of ethics by which to live. God's people have always had The scriptures at every stage of their historical development. They've always had the scriptures. Obviously, as time went on, they had more of the scriptures. That's just the nature of progressive revelation. But make no mistake, scripture is what binds God's people in every era. It is the lifeblood of of God's people. It always has been. It always will be. And their doctrine leads to their practice, as we hammered home in our last study. It is their wisdom among the nations. It forms their epistemology. Their doctrine leads to their practice. And in their spiritual fight, where they share the struggles, God's people have developed their own mottos and anthems to make the struggle bearable. We call them confessions and hymns. They proclaim doctrine in creeds, sing it in their hymns and and even sum up parts of it in a confessional form to foster a a militant zeal. Among the most famous is Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. It's known as the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. It made a rather powerful statement in the midst of a polytheistic ancient Near East. Joel 2.13 is another one in a consistent refrain throughout the Old Testament. The Lord your God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in mercy and relenting of catastrophe. All over the place. To show just how proactive Israel was in arousing zeal in the nation, to trust God in all situations with confessions, they even created a title for each of God's attributes, and called on him with that particular title that best fit the need of the moment. If they were facing war, they prayed to El Shaddai, God Almighty. Abraham, rejoicing over God's provision for a substitute for his son Isaac, praised yahweh Jireh, God who provides there's Yahweh Kenu, God our justice, El Elyon, God most high, Yahweh Nisi, the Lord my banner, Yahweh Shalom, the Lord of peace, and so on. There can be no question that Israel's doctrine bled throughout their lives. Practice of summing up powerful doctrinal statements in confessional form carried over, as you would expect, into the New Testament. The Gospel is really one of those confessions. We read it this morning. In 1 Corinthians 15.34, I hand down to you as of first importance what I also receive, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That was a creedal formula in the early church. Another is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus is Lord, that's another. And Maranatha, Right? Come, O Lord, 1 Corinthians 16.22. They even had baptismal formulas that we still use today. Matthew 28.19 is one example, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. The doxology in Second Corinthians 13.14 is one that you hear me recite every, after every service. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all the english word creed comes from the latin credo or credo which means i believe the church down through the centuries had expressed what it believed especially during controversies and times of severe persecution when burning protestants at the stake was the order of the day they needed to remind themselves why they stood for reformation Out of the crucible of persecution came the Westminster Confession. It came the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith that we recite every Lord's Day in part. The Belgic Confession, the Apostles' Creed, and many, many more. They were summaries of doctrinal truth from the infallible Word of God, bursts of, of significant meaning for the need of the moment. They served the purpose of strengthening God's people when they needed it. We return to Hebrews 10, then, this morning. We're looking at verse 23, but we need to go there by way of 1 Samuel 23. 1 Samuel 23. It's a great example of how believers strengthened other believers with God's word, with the truth, even in confessional ways. The context is the meeting that Jonathan had with David, David despairs of life, when he learns that Saul, who was hunting him down to kill him, was nearly upon him. There's no question, David and his men were afraid. They were paralyzed. In fact, you could even say they lost the battle right here, right now, in the mind. Just as David sinks into the slough of despond, Jonathan visits and strengthens David in The Lord, now the phrase in the Lord, verse 16, qualifies Jonathan's strengthening ministry. here. Here's what he did. He discerns that doubt is at the root of David's fear and that David was starting to live more by by sight than faith in the promises, in God's promise to make him king. So Jonathan speaks directly to those doubts. He says, do not be afraid because the hand of Saul, my father, will not find you. And then he firmly reiterates God's will for David that Samuel had already declared, you will be king over Israel. There's no question. God said it, it's going to happen. Believe it. Believe it. How we strengthen others is no different than the way Jonathan strengthened David. We zero in on the root of their weakness and we bring the word of God to bear on it, reminding them of God's unchanging will for them. We call them to believe it, to confess it. Someone doubts God's word, we say, well, why do you doubt? Why do you doubt God is faithful? He never changes. Believe it. Someone struggles with fear of persecution, we say, why do you fear? If God is for us, who can be against us? Believe it. To the timid, we say, why are you timid? God has given us a spirit of timidity. We're we're more than conquerors. Now, I don't mean to suggest that one-liners like this can solve complicated problems. My point is simply that God's word addresses every believer's problem and crisis with timely and applicable truth. And we need to believe it. And the benefit of being part of a body is that someone can minister to you with God's truth, can grab you by the shoulders and shake you if that's what's necessary, and and give you God's truth. Now, that's something we'll talk about next week. While we understand the importance of that, and there are times where that needs to happen a lot more, there are also times, perhaps more often than not, when we face temptation without the help of the body, without the, the, the close comrade or co-laborer who needs to give us a shake and knock some sense into us. No one's around. No one's around. We're, we're like Uriah. Our fellow citizens, soldiers seem to have withdrawn from us, and they've left us exposed And many of us fall in battle at this point, finding the onslaught of temptation overwhelming. How do we fight our battles single-handedly and successfully with temptation and sin when no one's around? Well, the same way. We minister the word to ourselves, the way in which someone would minister minister it to us. Well, let's go to Hebrews 10 and we'll see how this works. We're looking... At three timely admonitions here in chapter 10, we've already examined the first one in verse 22. Let us continue to approach God in faith. We turn our attention to the second one now. Let us hold firmly to our confession of hope, verse 23. We've talked about faith. We're now going to talk about hope. Stating it in its proper context, the writer says this. If it is true that we can now walk boldly into the holy sanctuary without fear because Christ's work and, and, and appeal to him who is our sitting high priest that ministers to us, and it is true, then let us hold firmly to the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. You can just, you can just hear the, the pastoral element in that, right? The writer ministering to the need of the moment. The confession. What is that exactly? Well, it would certainly include the public confession that each one of these in this church made before entering the waters of baptism. The writer had just finished re- re- uh, referencing rather, baptism in the previous verse, the, the, uh, the washing with water. Now, that confession would have centered, of course, around the gospel. But it's obvious that the writer has something more than just the gospel uh, in mind from what he says in this letter, or what he has said in this letter so far. How he's talked about how God has spoken to us. God spoke to us in these last days in his Son, Jesus Christ, he says, chapter 1, verse 3. Jesus teaching... (laughs) Translated into apostolic teaching that the Holy Spirit brought to the New Testament apostles and writers, and which became the full expression of God's revelation to the church, and it is that revelation that we here confess. Now, it's true that those in the first century congregation, uh, who uh, no doubt had less of the New Testament that we, than we do, depending on when the first cent- when they lived in the first century, but but not much less. And we can be sure that the first century Jewish congregation here had an understanding of salvation history that uh, culminated in the New Testament with its better promises. We talked a lot about the covenants uh, not too long ago. This is a theme that the writer brings up constantly. In chapter 2, he tells them to pay closer attention to what they've heard, perhaps Even some of the letters that were circulating around and and read to them as they assembled. They needed to pay attention in order to prevent themselves from drifting away from it. In chapter 6, he calls this body to to meatier aspects of the word. One of which is the superiority of Jesus' high priestly ministry over Aaron's that he actually outlines in full from chapter 7 all the way to chapter 10. Finally, in chapter 13, he mentions past leaders, most likely these are deceased, who had spoken the word of God to them and modeled how to live it. Uh, we would be right in understanding, then, that their confession is the same as ours. The scripture and its emphasis on God's redemption. That confession is the greatest confession there is, beloved. It is the greatest It is the very Word of God. It doesn't get any better than that. What an astounding fact it is to think that God has given us His thoughts in writing for us to have and master that we might know how to think and act like Him. Our confession is worthwhile and practicing our confession is a worthwhile endeavor. There is more. Please notice in the verse, verse 23, that he qualifies this confession by calling it a confession of hope. A confession of hope. Hope in the Bible translates into confident expectation. It has nothing whatsoever to do with chance, uh, much in the way that we use it today. Well, I hope it happens, but who knows? That's not the way hope is used in the New Testament the majority of the time. It has everything to do with a guarantee, a certainty What God's Word says regarding its transforming and sanctifying power is true. It will bring about a glorious end for us. No question. No question. Believe it. Confess it. No question about it. That is our certainty. So is the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our blessed hope, our certainty is coming. Again, we know that because he came once already. So is the eternal state, so is the judgment of the wicked, so are the rewards of the righteous. Our confession is one of hope because it is, it is both filled with hope and it nurtures hope in us, you see. We have seen up to this point in the letter how the writer cultivates confident Christian living by, by means of Christian hope. It's all over the place. He tells the congregation in chapter 6, verse 11, And we desire that each one of you demonstrates the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. And in verse 19, This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and reliable and one which enters within the veil. Chapter 7, verse 19, the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the introduction of a better hope through which we come near to God. So we have hope, a confession of hope. It is about hope and it nurtures hope. So far we've learned that we have a great confession. It's the scriptures in their entirety which centers on God's glorious redemption of His elect to his own glory and praise this confession is not only great because it's god's own absolute and supernatural words but also because it is the only confession that brings real hope again not a hope so hope not a hope against hope but a certainty a guarantee that what it says is true and will accomplish the goal for which god intended it right so that's what he says My word will not return void. What remains is the writer's admonition to us then to hold to this confession firmly. See how he puts it. Let us hold firmly to the confession of our hope. The phrase hold firmly is actually one Greek verb. One verb. The whole thing. Hold your place here and turn to 1 Corinthians 15 very quickly where Paul uses the very same word in the same context. Again, we, we, we looked at it for, uh, uh, in our preparation for the Lord's table. Verses 1 and 2. Now I make known to you, brothers and sisters, the gospel which I preach to you, which you also received in which you also stand, by which you also are saved, if you hold firmly to the word which I preach to you, unless you believe in vain. Wow. This is a very pregnant couple of verses. There there are a few phrases in this verse that help us to understand really what it means to hold firmly to a confession. He uses the parallel phrase, in which you stand. We stand in the gospel. Standing is a figure in the Bible uh, that we are well familiar with because we use it the same way today in our everyday language. Here it means to persist in the gospel, to persevere in the gospel. The psalmist says of the blessed man, he does not stand in the way of sinners, by which he means he doesn't persist in it. He doesn't take his stand in error. It fills out the phrase whole firmly a bit more. Uh, you, take your posse, your, uh, you take possession of the gospel, you persevere in it, you take a stand in its message. That has to be the case, because Paul then also says, by which you were saved. That must mean, then, that your confession changed you. Salvation was the first undeniable transformation that this confession brought about in you. And guess what? It'll spur on more redemptive practices in you. The phrase at the end, believed in vain, also adds up complimentary idea. If you don't hold firmly to the message of the gospel, that is, you don't persist in a lifestyle that is in keeping with your confession, well then the only conclusion we can come to is that you have believed in vain. And that is a sad thing. Coming back to Hebrews 10, we see that the writer then calls us, with the same authority as Christ, to hold firmly in the same way That Paul called the Corinthians to hold firmly. Take your stand, he says, in all aspects of Bible doctrine. Specifically, salvation in Christ, who is our hope. Persist in it, persevere in it. There is to be no wavering, no doubting. You either trust that it's true and real and you live it, or you don't and you live something else. You can almost hear the faint challenge to make one's mind up. As if he's saying, which is it going to be? This is exactly the question that Elijah put to unrighteous Israel in 1 Kings 18. remember? How long, how long are you going to struggle with the two choices? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal, follow him. Make up your mind. Likewise, in Joshua 24, the young leader, Joshua, lays out the landscape for unrighteous Israel of his day. Pretty much the same way. But if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourself today whom you will serve. Whether the gods which your forefathers served, which are beyond the Euphrates River, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living, but as for me and my my house... We will serve the Lord. Centuries later, a Catholic monk named Martin Luther would defy the religious institutions and the Pope by standing against erroneous Catholic dogma and standing squarely on Scripture. And the words of his retort to, the, to Pope Leo X, have become immortal and will forever echo throughout the corridors of time. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. How does that, how does that confession make you feel? Do you get goosebumps? Does a sense of commonality and pride for Christ well up inside you? Do you want to go out and face the anti-Christian climate with with confidence when you hear words like that? When you hear a testimony like that? If not, then you don't have the Holy Spirit residing in you. Holy zeal that is according to doctrine is contagious, beloved. It is meant to be. And that is why we hold firmly to it for, for our sakes and for the sake of other believers. Someone in earshot might be saying, well, easier said than done. You might as well be asking us not to sin. After all, sinful behavior is a departure from confession. Fair enough. It is. But I might respond this way. You don't persist in sin, right? As if it were characteristic of your life. John would have us believe that he who practices sin is not of God. That is, whose lifestyle is characterized by the same sins, year after year. We're going, we're going to sin. Yes, we know that. It's inevitable. But we don't walk around thinking that, or certainly not using it as an excuse. We should be thinking about how we win, not lose our next confrontation with temptation, walk as soldiers do, with their weapons at the ready, expecting the enemy to strike at any time. Christian life is very much a reconnaissance mission, you see. Walking circumspectly. And if we should get caught off guard, we have an advocate with the Father. This is part of our doctrine. We repent. We train ourselves never to sin the same sin over again. And we move on. And we do, we, do, we do this for love of Christ. We don't want to depart from God's truth. And that desire is a huge part of what it means to persist in our confession. Now let me give you something that might help you hold firmly. The rest of the verse says, for he who promises is faithful. This came up in our Sunday school hour. I was very glad that that it did. What is the point of this last phrase? Well, the context tells us that it goes with confession of hope. And it gives the reason why we can and should hold to it tenaciously and unwaveringly. It is because this confession... That holds our guarantee of eternal life and godly living rests on the promises of a faithful God. Our hope is grounded in the promises of God who is faithful. If there is any question that the promises of our confession will come to pass, don't give it a second thought. They will. Absolutely. Why are we so sure? Because God is the one who made them, and he is faithful. And he has got a sterling track record. There were those in the congregation who were showing signs of drifting, wavering, doubting their confession for various reasons, one of which was erroneous teaching from a Jewish sect out of Qumran that they found very appealing. And it led them to a lifestyle that was not exemplary for the Christian life. Now, the admonition here is don't let yourself wander. Pay close attention to your confession, not to the various belief systems and ideologies that are circulating above our heads on a regular basis, no no matter how sweet and how promising they may sound. Forget them. Their promises are empty and temporal. And once you start listening to voices other than God's, you open yourself up to their deception. Now, I don't say stick to our doctrine for the same reasons that cults tell their followers to listen to them and follow them blindly. Now, we know, obviously, that cults brainwash their followers. They forbid them to entertain any other thinking out there, and and they want to indoctrinate them in their error. That's not how how Christians operate. In fact, we say to anybody, listen, the Bible's God's truth and we'll stand it'll stand scrutiny. It's infallible, inerrant, it's beyond logical refutation. So go ahead, challenge it. Try to refute it. Give it your best shot. You won't get far. If we must be in the know about certain worldly thinking out there that, that we have to deal with, then we measure it up with the Word of God. What's more, we can and must poke holes in these worldly ideologies and belief systems, right? That's part of what how Paul defines evangelism, Second Corinthians chapter 10. Evangelism is the act of tearing down ideologies, ideological fortresses, and taking the thoughts of people captive for Christ. It is the battle for the minds of men and women through the supernatural process of of evangelism. So when Paul told the Colossians in chapter 2, see to it that there there is no one that takes you captive through vain philosophy and empty deception in accordance with human tradition, in accordance with the elementary principles of the world, rather than in accordance with Christ. He said that not because he was afraid that there's something out there that's truly better than the Christian Confession, that will reveal Christianity to be a fraud? Absolutely not. He says this because the faith is the real thing. And there's no other absolute truth out there fit for life and godliness. He's not preventing us from dialoguing with unbelievers in hopes of winning them over. There is such a thing as an apologist. In fact, Paul was a good one. So was the writer to the Hebrews, and Jude was a good apologist as well. He calls us to contend for the faith, right? I would say that there are at least two good reasons then for this admonition to hold firmly to our confession in Hebrews 10, two at least. The first is that there are many in the church who are immature in their faith, and they can be easily confused and persuaded by error, especially where it's dressed up in Christian garb. Immature Christians cannot detect counterfeit truth very easily. And this first century congregation was full of them. The second reason has nothing really to do with immaturity and everything to do with the deceitful schemes of the evil one. After all, he's been at it a long time. He took took on Jesus by using the word of God against him. The reason he failed, of course, is because Jesus knew the word well and could argue from it. We need to know the word well, too. But I say, immaturity is not the weakness in this second reason. You can be a mature believer and still be taken in by the devil. He has other tactics that are effective against mature believers. He can play upon their fear of man or their pride, or their particular area of weakness, and lure them into error through one of those avenues. I think we've seen this happen just recently. Many leading Christian personalities that were a great boon to the church for so many years have drifted in their stance, buying into the critical race theory and the woke theology. It's most likely not because they had no sound knowledge of doctrine, but because some have no discernment and others of them could be motivated by a fear of man and not wanting to have their reputations perhaps tarnished by standing against what's popular in churches today. It is sad to say, but their faith is not worthy to be imitated. They're not holding to their confession of hope. That is grounded in the promises of God. Let me bring this to a close by saying that we think of Wiles' informal creed, which sounds pretty good, but we cannot help to think that as wise as he was beyond his years, that this was operational only on the human level. Christians also have a creed. It's much more formal. It's our beloved scripture and contains the promise of a faithful God. Promises of a faithful God. It operates on the eternal level and it produces an eternal hope, a certainty, a guarantee of its own promises. It is the only confession that can save a soul from God's wrath and eternal condemnation and establish a personal intimate, eternal relationship with the same God. It is everything we need for life and godliness. It defines us. It gives us Christ's authority to tell people the truth. It justifies godly living. It allows us to withstand the schemes of the devil and persecution from the world. And both of those, beloved, will grow only more severe. Are you holding firmly to God's truth? This is the responsibility of each Christian for it is what will get each of us through the battle unscathed when our co-laborers are not around to help us. Holding firmly to the confession of hope. Remind yourself of God's promises. Be confident in the hope of your confession. It is enough that Jesus stands with you in the embodiment of his word. It's enough. He did with Paul. He did with Martin Luther. And he will with you.